Good morning. The last few weeks we have been in a series in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, which is the historical account of Israel enslaved in Egypt by Pharaoh and how God comes down, rescues them out of slavery to take them into His presence, His glorious presence at Mount Sinai, ultimately to lead them at the end of this book into uh, where His presence will dwell among them in the tabernacle, from slavery to glory. As you heard Pastor Andrew even say in his prayer, the themes of Exodus are, are really vital to understanding the person and the nature, the work of Jesus Christ. That the God of the Exodus is the same God who comes down to us in Jesus and rescues us from slavery to sin and death and self. And Jesus rescues us not to just leave us alone, but to bring us into his glorious presence. Today we're tackling one of the most dramatic and important sections in Exodus, the plagues. The plagues. We're going to look at the first nine plagues today. And we're going to save the last one for next week. This section is quite long. We're in chapter 7, Exodus 7, 14, all the way to 10, 29. I'm not going to read it all. It would take almost 20 minutes. Um, And that could be a whole sermon. I mean, it's that good. But I'll read some of the text this morning. And then, but I encourage you, read all of it. uh, Read all of it this week. All the pastors, uh, staff, we read it this week. The whole thing in our staff meeting, our devotions, it was was rich. It, It took a lot of time, but it was so good, so helpful to illuminating what God is doing. This is a turning point in Exodus. God has already promised to deliver his people from the oppressive grip of Pharaoh. It took 40 years to prepare this man named Moses to be the the man that God had prepared him to be to lead them out. Moses is incredibly insecure, but the Lord reveals himself and he says, look, knowing me personally, knowing me, the I am, will give you the confidence to obey my word. And Moses steps out and he obeys. And Moses has been growing in his understanding of this question, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? And now Pharaoh, chapter 5, is confronted with the same question. Who is the Lord? Who is the Lord? In Exodus 5.1, the first time Moses enters Pharaoh's presence, he says, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go. And what does Pharaoh say? He replies, Who is the Lord? that I should obey his voice and let Israel go. I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. And here's what I need you to understand. It is precisely this question that triggers the plagues. Who is the Lord? And the Lord says, I'll show you who I am. God will answer this decisively for Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? Look, that's not just Pharaoh's question. That's the question we ask all the time. It's it's the question that Christians ask. It's the question non-Christians ask. It's the question our society is asking. Who is the Lord that we should obey his commands about our sexuality? 
Who is the Lord that we should obey his command about how we treat the most vulnerable among us? Who is the Lord that we should obey him in terms of understanding the Bible as absolute truth? You see, Pharaoh's not asking this question as an atheist. Egypt had over 100 gods. He's asking this question as a religious pluralist. In other words, there was many gods. He believed in many gods. And he's basically saying to, to Moses, I, I don't care that your Hebrew people have a god. I don't care. Worship whoever you want. But how dare you presume that I should worship that god and obey him? The vast majority of Americans, 96% at the latest poll, say they believe in some sort of god or higher power. And yet so often we seem to be asking the same question. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? You know, we don't mind the idea of a God that is loving, right? A God that is all loving and all forgiving. We love that. We want that. But mostly we want him to mind his own business. As soon as this God asks us to do something that is hard, something that is uncomfortable, something that requires faith or sacrifice, we are sort of insulted. If there's one thing we can't tolerate, it's a deity infringing on our freedoms and our desires. Even as Christians, right, the people of God, we can say, God, I worship you, I serve you, only a holy God, and then God tells us to do things that we don't want to do, and all of a sudden we're crying out, that's not fair. Why do I have to forgive my fellow church member? He's such a, you know, mean guy. Why do I have to treat my spouse that way? Why do I have to do, Why? It's an affront to our sense of autonomy and, and self-sovereignty for God to say, live this way. I'm guessing that if you and I were to sit down and have a chat, there would be areas of your life where you would, you, you know, you know God is calling you to obey. You know God is calling you to, to live this way, to feel this way, to think this way, but you're wrestling and, you want, and you're self-justifying and you're asking all kinds of questions and you're trying to like wriggle out of, well, not everybody believes that or not everybody says I have to, and, and you're asking the same question, who is the Lord that I should obey him? That is the question that triggers the plagues that the Lord answers in the plagues. And yes, we will see the full force of God's judgment on display. But I want you to hear this. The plagues not only reveal God's judgment, they also reveal his mercy. Because the plagues reveal the foolishness of trusting in false gods. And they really invite Pharaoh and the Egyptians and all of us to trust Yahweh as the one true God and to do what he says. Turn to Exodus 7, beginning of verse 14. We're going to read into chapter 8. I'll stop after the first three plagues, and then we'll jump to the end of chapter 10 and read the ninth plague. Here we go. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to listen to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, that's Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus saith the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that's in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go into Pharaoh and say to him, Thus saith the Lord, Let my people go, that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all of your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come on you and your people and all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff out over the rivers, over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he, Pharaoh, said, Tomorrow. And Moses said, Be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh, and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs, as he had agreed with Pharaoh, and the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth, and there was gnats of men and beasts, and all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magicians said to Pharaoh, 
this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Turn to chapter 10, beginning of verse 21, the ninth plague. Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, a darkness to be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was a pitch darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But, in all, but all the people of Israel had light where they lived. Then Pharaoh called Moses and said, Go serve the Lord. Your little ones also may go with you. Only let your flocks and your herds remain behind. But Moses said, You must also let us have our sacrifices and burnt offerings, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock also must go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take all of them to serve the Lord our God. And we do not know what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take care never to see my face again. For on the day you see my face, you shall die. And Moses said, As you say, I will not see your face Again, this is the word of the Lord. Who is the Lord? God is answering that decisively in these plagues. Who is the Lord? Lesson number one, the Lord is the one true God. That is what he is communicating to Pharaoh. He is the one true God. I don't have time to explain every single plague, but I'll touch on a few of them to show you how each plague is an attack on Egypt's false gods. Each plague is an attack on one of or more, one or more of Egypt's false gods. The plagues come in sets of three, and then there's this final plague. So the first plague is that God inflicts on Egypt blood in the Nile River. Keep in mind, the plagues are not haphazard. They're not just random. They are carefully chosen by God to prove his sovereign power and to bring deliverance. The Egyptians worshiped the Nile as a god. It contained the water they needed for crops, the food they needed to live. It was literally the economic center of the region. So to strike the Nile was to strike at the heart of Egypt. And the primary god of the Nile was this goddess of fertility called Happy. H-A-P-I. Happy. Happy is there to provide fullness of life, the Egyptians thought. Without the Nile River, there would be no fertility, no economic prosperity. If without the Nile River, there is no Egypt. And so the Lord turns the Nile into blood. This would have been catastrophic for the nation. God doesn't start lightly. He strikes right at the heart of them. He stri- and by the word, the, pla- the word plague means strike or blow. It's first strike, the first blow, then the next blow, and it's blow after blow. But this first one is catastrophic. Think 2020 when, when COVID shut the whole world down just like that right? Stock market crashes. Grocery shelves empty. People are out of work. The very air we breathe is contaminated. It was total chaos. That's what happened in this first plague. God is striking at the symbol of Egypt, the very thing that gives them life. 
What is the Lord communicating? He's saying, look, happy cannot give you happiness. Happy cannot give you fullness of life. Happy cannot provide your heart what it longs for most. Pharaoh and the Egyptians have been worshiping the Nile to provide for life, but it's a lie. It's just a false god. Now, was the Nile a good thing? Yes. But as we know, any false god is usually a good thing that becomes an ultimate thing. What are you looking to provide for your needs today? Are you putting your hope in your job, the stock market, a relationship? You're going to be deeply disappointed. Seeking life in any one of those things is like riding a roller coaster. You better strap in because you know it's up and down, up and down, up and down, and most often more downs than ups. And even the ups aren't that great. The only person who can meet your deepest needs and can handle being the very center of your life is Jesus Christ himself. He literally said, Jesus, in John 10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. But we struggle to believe that. We look to our marriage to give us life. And then we are, it drives us crazy how messed up our spouse is. Right? We look to our career to give us life, and we find that we're surprisingly disposable. Right? We, you, you better believe that God will reveal to us that nothing else in life can satisfy the way he does. And we might, we might ask, is that his judgment? Yeah, sure. It feels terrible when life disappoints. But it's also his mercy to show us that these false gods are not really gods. They can't satisfy Only he is the Lord our God. Only he is the true God. Now, somehow the magicians of Egypt are able to replicate the first two plagues. Somehow they're able to take water and whatever they do, oh, look, it's blood. Somehow they're able to draw frogs out. I have no idea how they manage this. Here's what I do know. Don't get caught up in like, that drives me crazy. How did they do it? I don't know. But here's what we do know. The magicians never have the ability to stop the plagues. And they never have the ability to reverse the plagues. The irony of ironies here is that these Egyptian magicians could only add to their own misery. You can produce frogs. Look what we can do. More frogs. Moses is like. No, I don't know. By the third plague, though. And we read it, the gnats, the flies, mosquitoes. By that, they, could, they couldn't replicate it. And, they, and literally, by the third one, they're like, that's the finger of God. By the sixth plague, the magicians can't even stand in Pharaoh's court because they, the boils are on their skin as well. By the eighth plague, the Pharaoh's, Pharaoh's officials are literally begging him to let Israel go. They've had enough. And yet it repeatedly says, that Pharaoh's heart remained hardened. The plagues make something very clear. God is the one true God, and that makes him the only one worth obeying. Through the plagues, God is communicating. Chapter 8, verse 10, this, this theme, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord our God. The plagues are a critique on two things. 
I touched on one earlier, or both of them actually. Two things, they're a critique on two things. One, that the idea that all religions are valid, that all paths lead up the mountain to God. The plagues are a critique on that. No, happy is no God. Ra is no God, only I am God. And it's a critique on the second idea, this idea of personal autonomy. The idea that I have the right to live however I want. God is saying, no, no you don't. I'm the one true God. I made you. I created all things. And as such, I have the right to tell you how to live. And get this, ultimately, the way I tell you how to live is for your good. More on that later. One by one, God goes up against the gods of Egypt and proves his superiority over them. The frogs, Egypt worshipped another god called Heket. H-E-K-E-T, Heket. And I, try, I almost put pictures up, but they're not completely clothed. And so I was like, no, forget it. You can look online if you want. But the Heket is a fertility goddess who had the head of a frog. So the Lord sends frogs on the land. In the beds, it says, in their bowls, their cereal bowls, in their, on their bodies. Heket can't do that. Not the sky goddess could not prevent the seventh plague of hail. And Ray, Amon Ray, one of the most revered gods of Egypt, you've probably heard of him, the sun god, could not prevent darkness from covering the land for three days in the ninth plague. Do you see? In each of the plagues, Yahweh goes toe-to-toe with the gods of Egypt, and they are shown to be powerless phonies compared to him. Who is the Lord? Listen up, Pharaoh. Listen up, you, all of you who can hear his voice speaking today. There are not many gods. There are not many paths of true happiness. There is one God, he is Yahweh, and there is one path, the Lord Jesus Christ. Who is the Lord? He's not only the one true God, he reveals himself here. The Lord is the holy judge. This is where things get even heavier. The plagues make it clear that the Lord is a God of judgment. Now, let's be honest. All of us would uphold some sense of justice in the world, right? We want justice. We, we want things. If, we, if something is right, it should, be, it should be recognized as right. If something is wrong, it should be recognized as wrong, and there should be consequences. We all have this innate sense of justice. But the problem is our justice can't even compare to God's justice. We want justice, but we don't want judgment. We, we don't want a God who can turn water to blood or rain hail down from heaven or who can claim the firstborn of everyone in Egypt. Look, is there any surprise that when Satan was tempting Adam and Eve in the garden, that the very first doctrine to be denied is the doctrine of judgment? Satan comes up to Adam and Eve. God says, you can eat of everything, enjoy everything in my creation except the tree in the middle of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat of it because the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Trust my heart. Live within my bounds. It's good for you. Satan comes along. Hey, what about that tree? No, 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 we're not supposed to see that. We back and back and back and forth. And then what does Satan say? You will not surely die. There it is. Very first doctrine to be denied 
is the doctrine of judgment. We want a God who offers us a kingdom of joy and peace, a God of love, not a God of wrath. We want a God of resurrection, but not a God of crucifixion. But to get rid of judgment is not just to take like a few insignificant parts out of the Bible. To get rid of judgment is to gut the entire book. This is a book that describes God as both a being just and merciful. Pharaoh is experiencing the judgment of God because he has hardened his heart to God's word. He is unwilling to obey. And what does God do through the plagues? God begins to unravel creation as an act of judgment. The plagues are literally an undoing of, of Genesis 1 and 2. Have you ever thought about that? In the plagues, do you, you see how nature is out of control? Right? It's breaking down. It's literally reverting back to pre-creation chaos. In creation, what does God do in Genesis 1? Yeah, he creates the sun, the stars, the moon, the land, the water, animals, plants, humans, and he creates it all to live in beautiful harmony. And there's light, and there's, there's growth, and there's flourishing. But in the, in the plagues, it's all backwards. You have insects destroying plants. You have weather destroying animals. You have disease and darkness and death. Everything is literally falling apart. They're literally reverting back to Genesis 1-2. And the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. What is God saying in the plagues? He's saying, look, I have created everything to function in a certain way to live in beautiful harmony. And God created humans, us, to live in dependence upon him and, and in obedience to him. And he warned Adam and Eve Sin will destroy that harmony. Sin will destroy the order of everything. Disobedience will lead to chaos and disorder and death. And Jesus himself reiterates, I've come to give you life, but he says Satan comes to steal, kill, and to destroy. The plagues make it abundantly clear that to disobey God is to literally bring chaos and disorder into your life. Because you're violating the very purpose for why you exist. They have a purpose for how God created you to live in glad submission to him and his word. That's Paul's argument in Romans chapter 1, for instance. Right? Romans 1, 18 to 32. He says, look, humanity exchanged the creator for the creation. We exchanged the truth for a lie. And we have now worshipped the created thing instead of the creator. And he says, when that happens, when we reject God, God doesn't say, I'm going to get you. You know what he says nowadays often? He says, okay, he gives us over. He says, is that what you really want? Okay, here, how, try it, go ahead. See where that leads you. He hands us over, and it has disastrous effects on our lives physically and spiritually, right? There's emotional darkness, there's mental breakdowns, there's relational conflict, there's physical addictions, there's sexual confusion, and ultimately death. God hates sin, and God will judge sin. The truth is, we treat sin lightly because we kind of like it. We can say we hate sin all we want, but the proof is in the pudding. How, how do we live? Oh, we don't see sin as cosmic treason against the holy God. We see it as fudging a little bit. 
right? If you know me, I'm not, I'm not quite the rule follower. And so I, I don't always break rules, but I sometimes break rules. I'm not trying to self-justify or anything, but I'm just saying there are rules and I'm always trying to feel like, yeah, yeah, I can, I think I can, is it, you know, I'm, I'm really good at that. Egypt is simply a stark picture of the chaos and destruction that comes from God's just judgment. Remember, just in case we've forgotten here, under Pharaoh's rule, there's been genocide, slavery of an entire people, tyranny, and God steps in and brings justice, and he is right to do so. God is a holy judge. God told Pharaoh, he even told him, judgment would come unless you change. God also told us that judgment on all humanity is coming. And the plagues show us that God's judgment is real and severe. And this gets at the heart of obedience. Do we just obey God because he's a holy judge and can destroy us? No. We obey God because his commands are ultimately for our good. Because see, if he is the one true God, if he is our creator, don't you think he knows what it looks like to live a life of flourishing? Right? I have, I've had, I have three children. My youngest is six years old, and I love him. He's an amazing kid. But look, if I just said to my six-year-old, look, you're getting old enough to do and do things for yourself and make your own decisions. Okay, buddy? Right? You got to pull your weight around here. I'm, le- I'm putting you in charge of your own self. All right? Figure it out. Whatever you want to eat, you, do, you eat. Whatever you want to do, you do. Look, my son's an old soul, but you know what? He's going to choose candy and popcorn all the time. And he's going to play video games all the time. And he's going to play football all the time. And he's going to think, this is the greatest of greats for life. But to try, but to, try to explain to him, I'm, I'm older than you. I've lived longer. I think God has given me a level of wisdom from my mistakes and my good things, right? So I, I'm here to help you. God. No, God has placed me in charge of his life for a reason, Yes, have candy on Friday afternoons after the end of the week, but on Monday you're having good food. So to presume that we could figure out life on our own, apart from our maker, our creator, telling us, here's how I created you to live. It's like six-year-olds trying to just do it all on their own. As our creator, God, everything he tells us is born out of his wisdom and grace to help us live the way we were meant to live. And to reject his lordship, to move away from his will, is to invite chaos and darkness into our lives. Pharaoh was defiantly disobedient to the Lord. And the plague showed him, this is how awful it is to reject the Lord's word. Can I just ask you, before we move on, is there any area of your life where you have been defiant in your disobedience, where you're just, you've said, I, will, I cannot do that, I will not do that. I can start getting into examples, but I'm, I'm not trying to, and you're thinking, oh, he's talking to me. No, I don't know what it is for you. Relationally, I don't know what it is for you. With your finances, I don't know what it is for you. But I've talked to enough of you to know it's something, and you've talked to me enough to know, in my small group, to know it's something for me. Will we turn in repentance today and heed the word of the Lord? The Lord is the holy judge. The Lord is the one true God. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? The third thing we hear today in this text is the Lord is the gracious Savior. 
as the plagues ravaged, ravaged the land and the people of Egypt, we find that God graciously protects the nation of Israel, the people of Israel. Look at what he does in the fourth plague. Turn to chapter 8, verse 22. It says, But on that day I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there, that you may know that I am the Lord in the midst of the earth. Thus I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow the shine shall happen. By the way, the word division there in 23 is the word redeem. This protection, this redemption of Israel is restated in, in, in plague 5, plague 7, plague 9, and plague number 10. And it begs the question, why? Are the Israelites more, just more righteous than the Egyptians? Right? Are they more deserving because they've been willing to obey and listen to God's word? No. No, they doubt God at every turn. Later, God will call them a stiff-necked people. And he's, and, he's, and he's considering, I might be done with them. And Moses intercedes and he continues with them. But ultimately, he saves and he redeems them. What's happening? This is a concept that runs throughout the Bible and it's massively important and it's called grace. Grace is, is not giving us what we deserve, but instead giving us what we don't deserve. Now, in Romans chapter 9, let me show you. There's this passage in Romans 9 where Paul explains what God is doing in the hardening of Pharaoh's heart and showing compassion to Israel. Romans 9, 15 to 18 says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, and he quotes what our passage today, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whoever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Paul makes the case about the nature of salvation, and he's using Exodus to make the case. And his conclusion is that salvation does not depend on human effort, on our good works, but simply on the gracious choice of God. Now, if you, now some of you are squirming, but I, please, this is meant to be encouraging. We were dead in our sin. Christ came down to us to rescue us. We didn't choose to pursue God. He chose to pursue us first. There's this great line in the Narnia series, C.S. Lewis I think it's in the silver chair where, where Aslan, who's the Christ figure, uh, who's a lion, uh, appears to Jill. Right? And she's in Narnia where she finds herself in Narnia world and she was crying out to him in the real world and she appears she's like, oh great, I was calling out to you. And Aslan says to her, no, 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 girl, you would not have called to me unless I had been calling to you first. So who hardens Pharaoh's heart? Right? I got I to gotta address it because you're wondering. It's multiple times it says God hardens his heart, and then multiple times it says Pharaoh hardens his own heart. Which is it? This is a whole sermon, but let me just boil it down. I'm just going to read a sentence that I've written, and you can kind of wrestle with it later. Here's a summary. 
Pharaoh freely chose to harden his heart. Which is exactly what God had decisively chosen for him to do. Pharaoh freely chose to harden his heart. Nobody's pulling strings. Nobody's forcing him. He is the king. He's a demigod. At least he thinks. He's the son of Ra. He, he thinks that. Nobody, he gets to decide. He's, and he's hardening. He's, he's digging in his heels. But that is exactly what God had decisively chosen that he would do. Is that confusing to anyone? Good. It should be. Because there's a mystery to this. As one of my professors in seminary said, when you talk about human responsibility and God's sovereignty, like many other things in the Bible, it's not a problem to solve, it's a tension to hold. Stop trying to solve the problem. Do you understand the mind of God? You want to keep reading in Romans 9, that's what Paul says. Do you think you can tell God what to do? It's a tension to hold. God hardens Pharaoh's heart in order to bring judgment against him, but there's a greater reason. It's in order to bring salvation, in order to show his mercy, even to Egypt. Remember I said in the beginning, the plagues were sent to show God's mercy. In the seventh plague, the hail coming down, God tells the Egyptians, not the Israelites, the Egyptians. He says, look, take your livestock and you find shelter and you will be saved if you do it. It's like he's trying to gut his own plague. Like, here's the plague, but if you do this, you'll be safe. Well, which is it, God? God is inviting everyone from Pharaoh to the lowliest Egyptian to believe that he is the one true God. Because the plagues are not just about judgment, they're about salvation through judgment. Salvation through judgment. Just like, the, just like the, the, the flood, it's salvation of Noah and his family through judgment. If there is no judgment, there is no salvation. What do I mean? Well, we get to the ninth plague. And there's darkness in Egypt for three days. Why darkness? Why, why is this the pen, penultimate plague? Why is this the, you know, it's kind of building. Why is this like nearing the worst of the worst? Because in the Bible, physical darkness is a metaphor for spiritual darkness. If you've ever been in pitch darkness, you know how disorienting it can be. Right? That you, this is what sin does to us. It leaves us in utter darkness. And darkness is a loss of perspective, right? You can't see anything. It's a loss of hope, right? People have been in dark for long periods of time. It leads to hopelessness. It's a loss of identity. Who am I? I can't see anything. I don't know who I am. It's loneliness. The ninth plague is not the last time that darkness would signify God's judgment. Centuries later, as Jesus is hanging on the cross, we read in Matthew 27 that there is darkness in all the land for three hours. And in the midst of that darkness is when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it says that the earth shook and the rocks split open and then Jesus died. Why darkness? Because on the cross, all the plagues of God's justice fell on Jesus. 
Every blow, every strike was on the Son of God. Everything in creation began to unravel as Jesus was being cut off from everyone around him, even the very face of his Father. Do you know why? Why is it happening? Because on the cross, Jesus was taking the judgment that your sin and my sin deserved. The one who had no sin was literally becoming sin for us. He was experiencing every plague that we deserved. The guilt, the agony, the the blow after blow. Shame, loneliness, rejection, the wrath of God. All of it came down on Jesus instead of us. Which means the cross is the ultimate exodus. Because if there is no judgment, there's no salvation. God can't overlook his justice in order to save us. It's salvation through judgment because the darkness of God's judgment came down on Jesus instead of you. Jesus experienced a death you should have died. Here he is, the creator of the universe. John 1, everything was made through him and yet the very creator comes down and is willing to suffer and die for you. So that instead of being swept away in utter darkness forever, instead of being separated from the presence of God for all of eternity, we can now be forgiven of our sin, redeemed, rescued, loved, made new, fullness of life now, Jesus says, and eternal life to come in his glorious presence. The cross proves once and for all that God's will to save is much greater even than his will to punish. And when Jesus rose from the dead, he declares he can not only take away sin, he can restore everything that sin and death destroyed. Everything sad is becoming untrue. Christianity is the only religion that says God himself took your judgment so that you could be restored into relationship with him by sheer grace. Not by good works, not by earning it, not by following an eightfold path or the five pillars of Islam, no, but by grace alone in Christ alone. So then how do you experience the reordering of your heart and mind, the restoration of it? Here's here's how you do it. You do the exact opposite of Pharaoh. Don't harden your heart. As we heard in Psalm 95, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. No half-hearted repentance. I've I've, I've sat with a a number of Christians over the years, church members, and they want half-hearted repentance. I want to keep doing this and I want to follow Jesus. And you want to bargain with God, and God says there's no bargaining. You being here today is objective evidence that God is a gracious Savior. He wants you to hear his voice and trust in Christ. To admit your sin, don't hide from it. Turn to Jesus by faith alone and receive his gift of forgiveness. You see, when you trust in Jesus as Savior, when you give him the rightful place as Lord of your life, you say, Jesus, you get to call the shots now. You make the rules. And although living in obedience is costly and hard, you will be living exactly the way you were created to live. And slowly you'll see the Lord transforming your desires and transforming your mindsets and transforming your actions and transforming your words and transforming your very life. Who is the Lord that I should obey him? I pray you answer that today in a humble and joyful response that he is the Lord Jesus Christ who loves me and gave himself up for me so that I might no longer live for myself but for him who died and rose for me. Let's pray.
Jesus, we come to you admitting that we deserve nothing less than all these plagues and more. That our sin is, any, is no less worse than Pharaoh's. God, but we come this morning full of gratitude, full of hope, full of relief that every blow, every strike, every plague that I deserved fell on my Savior so that I might receive not your judgment but your salvation. That Jesus took everything we deserved so that we, by faith, might receive everything he deserved. Life, freedom, forgiveness, joy, glory. Lord, would you allow this church, our church, my church, to rest in this beautiful reality that Christ has paid it all, that we are yours now and forever, that no one can snatch us out of your hand, and we, may we live in humble obedience to your word, no matter what it costs us, to show the world living in the light is the only way to live. And living in the light is the only way to die. Because we know death will only give way to victory. Jesus, we need you to do a work in our hearts. For those who need to right now repent and believe the gospel for the first time, I pray that you would soften their hearts. Lord, do that work. Draw them to yourself. They would not have come to you if you had not been drawing them to yourself first. So God, show them today that today can be the day of salvation. That no matter what they've done, no matter where they've been, no matter what questions they have, I pray that today, Romans 10, would be true. That everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We need you. We love you. Please hold us fast today, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.